Thanks for joining us today. This is our IIM Early Stage Investing Podcast. Um, IIM invests in seed to Series A companies in the agriculture, animal health, and human health spaces. We've deployed about $6 million across 20 different portfolio companies. And today, Lee Harris, our managing member, and I, we are going to talk about what is really driving our investments, and that's an exit. Um, so there are several different exit strategies that founders and companies might have, different pathways, likely not linear, and different end goals that founders might have as they're launching their business and pitching that business to venture capital investors. Um, a lot of times, Lee, we see that the exit might not be front and center of that founder. They might not have thought through their exit plan or how how to um, not ensure, but how to be on the right pathway towards making money, not only for the investors, but for the company and for the founders and the early employees as well. Um, so one of the things that we try to coach our founders on is having an exit plan from the very beginning and helping investors see a pathway to that 10x, 20x return um, and base that in reasonable assumptions that are also um, opportunistic. So Lee, how would you like to set the stage for that? I, I kind of did a little bit, but starting with, with the end in mind and having an exit plan, um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, Lydia, I think that it's important for people to understand that uh, we're not interested in, I don't think venture investors generally are interested at all in funding a company that we call a lifestyle business for the founder. In other words, if the founder has no plan to exit the business, uh, we don't know how we're going to get our money back. Uh, and, and that we call that a lifestyle business. Venture investors just aren't interested in that. We want our money back, plus a multiple on that investment, as you point out. And that means that a, a company needs to position itself. The founders need to position their companies every step of the way to be as appealing for as many different exit paths as possible. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are some primary exit buckets uh, that, that we look at. Uh, and let's start with the, with the IPO or initial public offering. This is when a, pub, a company goes public. Um, and uh, there's some statistics here that are kind of interesting. Uh, from 2013 through 2022 year to date, nine and a half years, there have been an average of 341 companies going public uh, each year. Uh, if you take out 2021, which was an anomaly, there was 1,035 IPOs that year. It's a huge uh, anomaly. That average then for the remaining years is only 260 companies per year. So the bottom line here is there aren't that many companies that will go IPO. <clears throat> so if a founder is looking uh, hard at uh, going IPO, uh, it's going to be a pretty tall order uh, for, for that to happen. Usually a company needs revenue in the 50 to $250 million range, but it's about more than just revenue. It needs to, there needs to be a real growth potential for that company. And at the time of IPO, uh, kind of a rule of thumb is that we want to be able to see a path to three to four times the current size and that's achievable in the next two to three years. It's also very expensive to go public. Uh, some estimates, $750,000. Well, there's a lot of legal and accounting fees and audit fees and 
marketing fees and, and the cost is just fairly significant. And it takes a long time, 18 months and sometimes longer. I've heard of IPOs stretching out as long as 30 months, uh, <clears throat> particularly if there's a little bit of a downturn in, in the marketplace. So an IPO is an exit bucket, but it's probably not uh, the, uh, the the most likely for the kind of companies uh, at this early stage that we're looking at. And Lee, if I could add also that timeline of 18 months, in order for like us as the early investors to have liquidity from that, that often takes much longer than that then because there's lockout periods and sometimes there's like staged distributions over time or just all sorts of other levels where it takes more time to get money back in the hands of investors. And that's, you know, from anecdotally, from stories that I've heard, I don't know data on that, but it does elongate the overall process. Well, no, no question about that. And uh, uh, usually for an early stage uh, uh, funding platform like ours, we're probably going to be out before an IPO would occur anyway. Uh, so, uh, you know, we get, as you said, seed stage to Series A, maybe Series B. There are companies that have Series C, D, E, F, G before they go public. And usually well before uh, that occurs, uh, there's been some event that that gets us our money back and, and our multiple, and then we're out. But again, it is an exit bucket if a, a, a company... Uh, is is looking at all of these different ways to be as appealing as possible. Uh, that's that's a path that needs to be at least on the radar screen. <clears throat> so next, I mean, there's also the SPACs out there, special purpose acquisition companies. I'm wondering, as you talked through this data on how many IPOs there were last year, I'm wondering how many were actually part of that SPAC craze in 2021. I don't know if um, the, your research showed that um, specificity, but yeah. maybe talk through us, Lee, what a SPAC is. They were all the rage last year, and now this year in 2022, they've sharply turned, um, and they've really gone out of favor from an investor's point of view, the big like institutional investors that are providing the funding for the SPAC process. But maybe, Lee, walk us through what that SPAC process is, what's the purpose, and what it in turn means for investors. The SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. That's where the acronym comes from. And it's a what uh, some people in the industry consider a blank check company. So it's a corporation that has been uh, created for the purpose of acquiring an existing business uh, that's in the private realm and taking it public. This becomes a much easier way to do that uh, than the IPO. Uh, it's quicker, it's probably cheaper, uh, and a SPAC needs about 18 to 24 months uh, in terms of the timeline. Uh, and if they haven't made that acquisition in that timeline, uh, they're giving the money back to, to their investors. Uh, now, uh, the sponsors are basically looking for the same attributes of a company as an IPO candidate. So one might say, why don't you just go public? Well, uh, if, if SPACs are in favor as they once were, it was cheaper and it was quicker to get there. Uh, in uh, 2020, there were 247 SPAC issues. 
There were 613 in 2021. And as you pointed out, the SPAC uh, approach has kind of fallen off the cliff. For the first six months of 2022, there's only been 68. Uh, and that's SPAC issues. That means that uh, a SPAC has been created or established by a sponsor, whether it's Bank of America or there's a whole host of, of large financial institutions and, and uh, other uh, enterprises that, that will sponsor uh, these, these SPACs. Um, as of June 9th, 2022, there have been 592 pre-deal SPACs yet to announce what's called a DSPAC transaction. What is a DSPAC? Well, that's when they finally acquire a company and the SPAC is, is effectively over. And now this company is in the public realm uh, that it, that's been acquired. Uh, some more st statistics to make your head spin. 119 SPACs, uh, again, June 9th, 2022, 119 SPACs were pending announced deals and a grand total of 373 DSPAC deals have closed since 2016. Uh, now, what's the bottom line here? Again, very few companies will go the SPAC route, uh, kind of similar to the IPO route. And as you pointed out, SPACs aren't in favor like they were in 2021. Uh, and so it's probably even less likely that uh, that the company will see that exit bucket as realistic at this point. I think what's happened with SPACs as well, the timeline is so relatively short between when like the SPAC entity collects capital from investors and when they have to buy the company. Um, and they have to identify a company that has huge potential for outsized returns in a very short amount of time as well. And at least that's the, the potential that the company can accelerate really quickly in order to make their investors happy. Um, I think a lot of investors got burned over the last year. Um, and so they've been pretty skittish now about participating in SPACs, um, maybe that they were more excited about last year. So that's really gone out of favor. Um, not to say it won't come back and it's not an option, but it's just not as we're not reading about as many of them um, as we were last year. So how about more of a traditional private equity deal, Lee? Tell us the lay of the land there. Well, that would be the third exit bucket that a founder needs to be contemplating. Uh, and some some more st statistics during the first half of 2022, volume in the private equity space has declined to 1,626 acquisitions of companies from 2,184 deals during the same period in 2021. So as you can see, there's a bit of a drop off there. And many of the PE deals that are done uh, are in that 25 million to $100 million range. So uh, it's it's not the billion dollar companies necessarily that uh, that are seeing the, the private equity come into, in, into the space. Uh, so it's a bit more likely that uh, an exit with a PE firm is possible than an IPO or a SPAC. Uh, the, the PE folks are looking for companies with multiple ways to grow, uh, including new markets, new locations, new and expanded product offerings, sales strategies, customer acquisition strategies, and a whole host of things they're looking for. But they they will look for a way to 
to, to get involved with the company and increase the EBITDA, the earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And they're targeting usually a 20 to 25% return, which is uh, on an IRR basis, kind of where we are too. Uh, so PE may be a little bit more likely, uh, but again, the company needs to be fairly mature, uh, not mature enough to go IPO or SPAC, but mature enough to have uh, an, enough of a uh, presence, let's say, in their their market uh, to catch the attention of a, of a PE firm. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say that the fourth bucket, uh, which I'd like you to talk about a little bit, is is a strategic acquisition because I think this this is probably the most likely uh, exit uh, for many of the the early stage companies that we look at. Yeah, strategic acquisition is is typically the most likely exit exit scenario that we see with the companies that we invest in. So what this means is that there's a larger company that's in the same space or same industry as that early stage company, and they see value in that earlier stage company because they can the the startup can help them either accelerate their presence in a particular submarket, or maybe they're acquiring the company because they don't want to have to do. 10 to 12 years worth of R&D to get that technology, um, or maybe they want to totally own the market share um, that that startup is starting to infringe upon. So there's a lot of different reasons why a strategic acquisition might occur. Um, it could be cheaper for the larger company to do that, even if they spend $100 million to buy a startup that could be less money than that R&D cost over time and the overhead associated with that. Also, a lot of these larger companies have a really hard time turning. Um, so if they're like a great big battleship, it takes a long time for them to shift um, their direction. And so acquiring an earlier stage company enables them to be more nimble and more flexible and have some great talent as well. Um, so we actually had a great exit uh, at the end of last year, 2021, it was October. Uh, so towards the end of the year last year, a company that we invested in a couple times called AgriSync, they're in the ag tech space. Um, they got acquired by John Deere, the hugest player in agriculture. Um, and what AgriSync had built over time was a platform that enabled farmers to connect with their trusted advisors in order for them to create streamlined, efficient service. Um, and so their trusted ag advisors could help them fix a piece of broken equipment. They could help them analyze something that might be going wrong with the plants on their farm. Um, instead of waiting multiple hours for someone to come out and visit them, the farmer has access using live video streaming. Um, they have access to the service that they need right away. They can connect with either the people that are already in their advisory wheelhouse or someone new maybe at the, the dealership program that they didn't have a pre-existing relationship with. Um, so AgriSync had been building their technology um, for several years and John Deere was one of their customers. Um, and so they continued to exceed expectations. Um, and they had other customers as well, of course. Um, but the interest on behalf of the acquirer started increasing. Um, and it turns out the acquirer wanted to have exclusivity with this technology that they were building. Um, and so many, many conversations, many months um, of back and forth with the two companies resulted in a, an outright acquisition by John Deere. And so that was a, a great experience, not only for the founders, um, but for their team members 
and for our investors as well. That was really exciting to be a part of for everyone involved. Um, so Lee, is there anything you want to add either about that particular acquisition and that exit that we were a part of or anything strategic acquisition wise? Well, I would say that the uh, IP, the intellectual property is something that is important to many of the uh, the acquirers. They, they see a company that's uh, hitting a lick, so to speak, uh, with a product that uh, has some protection from an intellectual property standpoint. Uh, they may see talent that they want. And so that strategic acquisition uh, could, could do a number of things for them, both in terms of making it less costly and faster to, to get to market with a, a product that they just can't pivot into and do the R&D, as you pointed out. But in the process, uh, they also pick up some nice IP. Uh, they pick up some talent that stays with the company after it's acquired. Uh, and it, it, this is, as I said at the outset, this is probably a whole lot more likely uh, as, a, as an exit bucket than the other three that I mentioned, not to discount the other three, but um, at any rate, this is uh, uh, where we think we see most of our exits occurring with, with these strategic uh, acquisitions. That's right. So to wrap things up, um, there's a few things that I think founders who might be listening can keep in mind as they're building their businesses and, and investors who are listening as well, things that you might want to look for as you're looking at companies to invest in. Um, a few things that the founders should be doing um, from, from our experience is that they need to have some sort of written plan. Um, we know that will change over time and it'll be a living document, but at least having something in writing that you're starting with and working on and a goal in mind um, can, can make the biggest difference in the world um, to actually put pen to paper and do that. That's, a, that's an exit plan, actually. Yes. Not just a bit, the overall business plan, but it's an exit plan. Right. A plan for an exit. Exactly. Um, something else that Lee and I, we've been talking with our founders and all the companies that we're even considering an investment in is having enough runway for 24 months. Um, being cash strapped and being stressed and having that sort of pressure on the business is not healthy for anyone. Um, so having enough cash for the business to make it for 24 months and having a plan to get there is really critical, especially in today's day and age. And that's something that we can't emphasize enough. Um, companies have to be able to survive and have a pathway to sustainability as well. Um, another piece of this as well, Lee, you mentioned IP, really focusing on the IP, applying for the patents that are necessary, making sure that's buttoned up tight making sure that you really do have a deep moat that utilizes that IP in order for the company to be really, really valuable. Lee, what else would I add? There's a few more things on our list as well. Well, and I think too, you, you mentioned the, the runway, the 24 months of runway. One other reason that's important is too often we think founders uh, are distracted from building their business because they're always fundraising. And so they'll do a little bridge around here. They'll, uh, they, they miscalculated. And so now they're doing an extension, a seed extension, whatever. And it's so refreshing to see a company that comes in and says, this, this cash will last us the way we manage our business in the last 24 months. We want to focus on building the business and not constantly fundraising. Other things I think that uh, are, are critical here to, 
for a company to position itself for an exit is building a solid team. Uh, we, we like to see a business that has more than a single founder, co-founders are great, and a good solid team of, of experts and you know, especially with domain expertise, uh, that's important to us. And a focus on growth, not just top line, but especially EBITDA. Now, a lot of pre-revenue companies are still trying to get to their minimally viable product. We understand that. Get there fast. We want to see companies that can get there quickly uh, and, and get out of the burn in terms of their cash. Uh, you know, a lot of SaaS businesses have focused on top line growth. Uh, customer acquisition uh, so that they can show that they have however many users, but they've been given away the store to get those users, and that doesn't help the EBITDA. I think that that's really critical, uh, that that as quickly as a company can, it focuses on growth for the bottom line, not just the top line. And that's really valuable to uh, an acquirer because when they see that EBITDA number, uh, going exponentially, uh, they start licking their chops and they say, okay, we want in because uh, this company not only proves they can go get customers, they have proven that they've got a solid team with good IP and differentiation and they're making some money here and we like that. Let's grab them now before they get too expensive for us to buy down the road. That's also, right. Yeah, I also think that, uh, that diversifying the, the product or pro product set, uh, service, if it's a service type of business, you got to make sure if you're a founder that you focus on the, the first product and get traction, but have additional products in mind. So if we see a company that we're looking at that uh, has a single product, and when we ask the, the founder, is there another application down the road to expand if we don't have some thought there on the founder's part we're not as interested but if the founder says we're starting with this the plan is then you know product x then we go to product y and product z but we're not going to roll those out until we know we've got traction on product x that's wonderful for us that's right and part of like one thing or a what we might call something like that is a platform technology, um, which expands even beyond just different product offerings in one single sector, but even using um, the same technology or the same intellectual property in multiple sectors um, for maybe different use cases. That really gets us as investors excited and potential acquirers excited as well, because they can continue to see that large upside potential for a company. Um, and that really brings our last point home as well, focusing always on substantial upside for the company, proving that out, that there is evidence for a substantial upside for this company beyond one year, two years, three years of growth. We wanna see that there really is exponential growth um, beyond just that three to five year timeline. So with that, we'll wrap things up. Um, hope you enjoyed our, our talk on exits for startup companies. Thanks everyone for listening.